So in 1501, 1501, it was during the, the height of the Renaissance, and there was a particular uh, cathedral in, in Florence that had a huge piece of marble that it needed to, to get rid of. It was, uh, was kind of discolored. It stood about 18 feet high. It had a, a big chunk out of the, the side of it. It had chips and cuts and scratches all over it. And uh, they just wanted to, to get rid of it, but they didn't feel like they could just throw away this big, big piece, piece of marble. So they offered it to, to a guy named Leonardo da Vinci, uh, who at the time was too busy with other projects, so he declined the offer to, to get this big hunk of marble. And uh, instead, they gave it to a young 26-year-old uh, artist, an up-and-coming guy named Michelangelo. And Michelangelo took this big old piece of marble, and he, he built a shed around it, and for two years, he basically lived with it. He, he set up shop in this, this little shed, and he had a, a mallet and a chisel and a drill, and for two years, night and day, he, he was in there with that, that piece of marble. And after two years, he, he, he emerged with one of the most famous sculptures in history, the Statue of David. And people were amazed that this, this guy could take this, this piece of discarded rubble and turn it into the statue of, of David. And the way that they used this, this chunk that was out for where David's leg would be and all these kinds of, they just marveled at it. And they asked, they asked Michelangelo, they said to him, how did you get that out of that useless piece of marble? And his reply instructive for us this morning. He said, I knocked off everything that wasn't David. He said, I knocked off everything that wasn't David. If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know that that is exactly what God is doing in our lives right now. That He is using situations and circumstances pain and suffering to chisel, as it were, at us and to shape us, to make us look more like Jesus, his son. That's what God is doing in the lives of his his people. Now, the trouble is for us is that in the midst of this process where God seems at times to be hammering on us and drilling on us and chiseling on us through all sorts of different means, we have questions that begin to to spring up in our hearts and our minds. Sometimes we ask, is is God angry with me? Is that why all this stuff is happening? Is God God mad at me? Or is he punishing me for things that I've done? And many of us may even be tempted to ask, does he really love me? Does he really love me at all? Well, this morning as we come to Hebrews chapter 12, the author is going to take up those very questions and this idea, and he is going to answer, yes, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. So if you have your Bibles, join with me in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, we're going to be in verses 3 and following this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we're on page 1008 in the Bibles that are provided for you there in the pew. As was mentioned earlier, that's our gift to you. Take it. 
You ain't stealing it, we're giving it. Take it and uh, take it home and, and read. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 3 down through, through 11 this morning. As you get there, in case you aren't familiar with the book of Hebrews, this book is written to a group of professing believers who come from a Jewish background. They had heard the gospel and they had professed that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And because of their profession, persecution had begun to come against them in all sorts of ways, but a particular social persecution, which we see in chapter 12, verse 4. We'll see that today. And the persecution is trying to push them to go back to Judaism, to see Jesus as a, as a phony and a fraud. And what they need to do is they need to go back to the law and back to the prophets and back to the sacrificial system and back to the Levitical priesthood because that's where God is. But this author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes as a pastor to this church and says, no, no, no. And he has, he has really two aims in this. He wants to, to warn their hearts that there's nowhere to go aside from Jesus and to warm their affections, to show them that Jesus is better. And you can't go back to the Old Covenant because God has fulfilled the Old Covenant in Christ, the one who is the mediator of a new covenant. And it's what we've seen all the way through this book, that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the prophets, chapter 1. He's greater than the angels through whom God gave the law in chapter 1 and 2. He's greater than Moses, chapter 3. He's greater than Aaron, the first priest in uh, chapters 4 and 5. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood that came out from Aaron, chapters 5 through 7. He mediates a better covenant, chapter 8. And he offers a better sacrifice and ministers in a better tabernacle, the one in heaven, chapters 9 and 10. And that Jesus is our ultimate object of faith, the one who persevered in faith, in obedience to the Father, all the way home, chapters 11 and the first part of 12. It's what this, this book of Hebrews is all leading us up to. And last week, we, we just looked at a couple verses. I'm going to read them again as it kind of gives a springboard into where we are this morning. 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, everybody from chapter 11, lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we are running this, this race of faith, we are, we are leaning into the promises that God has given and the rewards that he has laid before us, but as we run, if you've been a Christian very long, you know that becoming a Christian does not get you exempt from hardship. But rather, in, in, in many instances, it seems to, to be cranked up, the, the, we're put on broil, as it were, and just put right underneath of it. The heat is, is turned up, and there is pain, and there is persecution, and there is ongoing struggle with sin. But in the midst of all of that, what we've got to know this morning is that God is using situations and circumstances in our lives to make us more like Christ himself. And so our, our big idea this morning, we're going to see all the way through this text, is that the path of pain and suffering is the way God makes his children holy like Jesus. The path of pain and suffering is the way that God makes His children holy like Jesus. 
Now, it's not the only way. There certainly are times, um, and very often, where the Good Shepherd leads us to green pastures and still waters and just woos us with mercy. But I would say, and I think it's, it's clear in the Scripture, it's always in the context of trial and tribulation and suffering. So, pain and suffering is not the only way, but it is the necessary way that God uses to make us more like, like Jesus. Now, to help us unpack that big idea, we've got two main points that we're going to be thinking about together. The first is this, that we are to consider Jesus' suffering in our struggle. So, consider Jesus' suffering in your struggle. And then secondly, remember God's purpose in your pain. Remember God's purpose in your pain. So our two big ideas. So the first here, consider Jesus' suffering in your struggle. We're going to look just at the first two verses here, thir- or, well, verses 3 and 4. Follow along. Consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what he's telling them here is that as, as, we, as we run, we are to lift our eyes to, to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the intercessor over our faith, and we are to consider Jesus, he says here. Consider Jesus in your struggle. The word consider, it means uh, a careful reflection or, or study Learn from our leader. Consider how he suffered for the sake of sinners like us. Consider that, he says. Consider his life and consider his, his death. Consider that Jesus had no place to lay his head while he lived on the earth. Consider, consider the suffering that he endured, that his, his own family forsook him. Consider that his friends denied him in the moment he needed them the most. Consider that, that one of his closest betrayed him, somebody he had just washed the feet of and had spent three years pouring into, traded him for a bag of gold or silver. Consider how he was falsely condemned and how he was mocked and how he was beaten and how he went to the cross and there suffered as we saw last week at the hands of sinners but also suffered under the wrath of God he says consider his sufferings yet remember also as you consider his sufferings that he remained faithful in the midst of it all that he loved the father perfectly that he trusted his promises enduringly that he obeyed his commandments completely, that he submitted to his will all the way, even in his darkest hour. So what he says to us is, is as we run and we endure suffering and struggle, consider Jesus. Study his life and study his death in the Scriptures. Do it personally, but also we remember, as we talked about last week, this, this whole section here, this is all in the plural. It's written to us it's written to this congregation and applied to us in the same way here. That we as a, as a church, this is why we sit down before the, the Bible every week and open it up and proclaim it. So that we together 
and I'm preaching to me too, we hear this word that we need. We consider Jesus. And then we do this in our lives together every day. Praying that God would help you to not lose heart. Consider Jesus, he says, because there's a real danger for runners in the race of faith. Look again at verse 3. So that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. He says that's a real risk to grow weary. The word means sick or discouraged or fatigued to the point of exhaustion. Keep that same metaphor from last week of running the race. Or faint-hearted. It means to, to lose heart, to, for your legs to, to, to give out. It's used of an exhausted runner who's, who's running this, this, this race, but his will to keep on running is on the ropes because just, he, just, he just wants to quit. He says, consider Jesus because you will be tempted to grow weary and faint-hearted. You ever been tempted to be weary and faint-hearted? Some of you this morning came in here barely, just weary, faint-hearted, feeling like I'm not sure that I can keep going. I remember a friend whose wife was, was dying with cancer, and I remember sitting with him day after day and reading the scriptures and talking about things and I just remember one day he came in after taking care of her through the night and hearing her her screams and her pain he was pleading for God to just take it away and I remember he came in and he said he said pastor he says I just don't know how much more of this I can take he said I'm so tired and I I don't understand I just don't understand. Verses like this in the Bible remind us that God knows that it's hard. He he gives verses like this because he knows you're going to get weary. He knows you're going to get faint-hearted. That's why he says, consider Jesus. Because there's real help. There's real danger, but there's also real help for us in our struggle. He tells us to consider so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus' suffering in your struggle. It helps us to endure the struggle. Why? Well, because Jesus, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize in our weaknesses, but one who has been in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it is, it is very true that we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and how he may devour you. That's true if you're a Christian. It's true if you're not a Christian too and you don't know it. But for the Christian, we also have a promise that we have an advocate who ever lives to make intercession for us. So while we're suffering, Jesus is not on vacation. He's not just up there saying, it's finished, I'm done, I'm I'm seated, I'm checked out. He is the high priest who intercedes on behalf of the children of God that he shed his blood to purchase them for. That's what he's doing right now. We've talked about this. 
those who are in Christ, that you are saved. It happened in the past. Positionally, it's done. You are being saved right now. So when you're weary, He holds you fast. With the promise that one day He will return and we will be saved. Completed all the way home. Consider Him. Now how does considering Jesus help us? I don't know. What I mean by that is there's not like this formula that God gives you. This is an act of faith that God calls you to trust. That by taking your eyes off of your afflictions and seeing them in light of the Savior, that He does a supernatural act where He gives you strength. It's not something that you can just explain. This is why you got to be really clear. The Christian life is not just a walking down, check an aisle, you know, one-time act of, you don't check an aisle, check a box, walk an aisle, check a box. Now you're in this one-time act of faith. The Christian life is an ongoing life of faith and repentance all the way home. So what we do is we're looking to, to him. And there's some kind of supernatural strength and courage and resolve that God gives when we consider Jesus and his faithfulness. So when Satan prowls about like a roaring lion and he comes at you with the aim of getting you to turn away from God and faithfulness and to turn to some other sort of sin for relief, when that pain is there and that struggle's there, he says, look to Jesus. So when Satan comes with with deception, with temptation and promises that it'll just be better if you just dive in over here and take this forbidden fruit that you want so bad, that God's holding out on you. We remember Jesus in the wilderness who was tempted and who used Scripture and said, but God's Word says. And God uses that to strengthen us. So when, when Satan tempts us with distraction of worldly pursuits and ambitions at the cost of of, of of proclaiming the gospel and building his kingdom, we consider Jesus, who said, no, I will not take the crown without the cross. I will not take the crown that Satan offers apart from the cross that God the Father ordains. We remember that, and we're strengthened and resolved to to keep pressing on and to cast off every weight that seems to hang us up in the race. When danger comes and persecution comes, so you've got to know Satan uses all, he's got all kinds of stuff that he's going to use in his toolbox to try to get us to turn away from the Lord. Sometimes it's danger. This, person, this congregation here in, in Hebrews was feeling that. There was danger. There was persecution. And one of the things that we ought to do in the midst of persecution is remember, consider Jesus. And could remember that he said this was coming. If they persecuted the master, how much more the servants? And what it does is it confirms our calling that we are indeed His. He uses that. When there's discontentment that we're tempted with. They're like, I just, I don't like this lot that God has given me. I don't want to wait anymore for a spouse. Or I don't want to, I don't want to wait anymore for this house to sell. Or I don't want to, I don't want to keep trying to, to, to obey Him and be able to do things in a way that honors Him when there's such an easy path over here. And there's those green pastures that are laid out there from, from Satan saying, just come over here, it'll be better. When that discontentment is stirred in our heart, we consider Jesus who, in the midst of his enduring, what did he set his, his sights upon? 
last week, the joy that was set before him to be with the Father. We consider that, and God uses that to stir our affections and to help us. And when we face doubt and discouragement, we remember Jesus in the garden as he wrestled and prayed, and we draw strength from him. But you've got to remember that all of Satan's aims are to see in, in all the, the suffering and pain that we face, Satan wants us to see this as a reason to forsake God and to leave. And God wants us to see it as a reason to keep trusting him and to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And there is a war going on right now for your heart and your mind every day, every situation, every circumstance that we, that we find ourselves in. Seeing how Jesus endured suffering perfectly and died for the ways we don't do it gives supernatural strength. Now, this congregation had suffered, and we see that here in verse 4. They, they, they had struggled against sin, but you have not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. That They hadn't given their lives for the gospel yet, but it doesn't mean they hadn't faced all kinds of serious onslaughts. Following Jesus is not easy. The suffering and the struggling against sin become wearisome, and you're going to be tempted to quit or to be angry at God You're going to be tempted to, to become confused and forget who he is and, and what he's doing in our lives if we are in Christ. And to question, does he, does he love me? If he loves me, why would he let me go through this? What the author says here is rather than give up, look up and consider Jesus who is interceding and empowering you now. Remember that he is in complete control at all times, in all situations. And, hear this, there is not one thing that comes into your life did not that did not come through the loving and sovereign hands of God Almighty. You've got to know that. There's not one thing that comes into your life that did not come through the hands of a loving and sovereign and good God, and that he has a glorious aim in all of our afflictions. Which brings us to our second point. That we are to remember God's purpose in our pain. We are to remember God's purpose in our pain. So we're considering Jesus' suffering in our own struggle and suffering, and now we are to remember God's purpose in, in our pain. Follow along as I read 5 down through 11, chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father did not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share 
his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God uses this father-son imagery here for us to help us understand the relational dynamic of, of what's going on here. The word son shows up six times in this, this section here. He's helping us understand how he uses pain and suffering for our good. So if, if you're a Christian this morning, that means that God is your loving, loving heavenly father and you are his beloved children. That's the relationship that he, he has with you. Now before we get into this, I want, I want to say that for some of us, when we hear the idea that God is Father, we, we recoil with fear or anxiety or disgust or distrust because we had abusive fathers or absent fathers or just downright evil earthly fathers who used the authority that they had been given in an evil way and they hurt you. Here's what I want you to know. First of all, we want to we say we're glad that you're here. Even if you're just visiting and that's you and you're like, yeah, that's me. We want you to know that this is a, this is a church that we're all broken in here. Not in the same ways, but we want to help you walk through whatever that may have been like for you in a way that we believe God can help you. God can help bring healing and put grace on wounds that you thought would never heal. I want you to know that the way he does it is through his son, Jesus. Jesus, who, who left the glories of heaven and came to earth and lived a sinless, perfect life and then died on the cross the death that we deserved. They are receiving the judgment that we deserved. And then he rose from the dead. And now, by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus, God reconciles us to himself. And not just as God, who is far off, but he says, you call me Abba, which means Father. He says, you can call me Father. And I want you to know that through Christ, you can now know a Father who is good and who is faithful and who never uses his authority in a way that is hateful or, because you're a child of God, vengeful. Discipline for the child of God is never out of wrath. It is always out of mercy because he is shaping us to look more and more like Jesus. So if it's hard for you as you hear this language of father and son or father and daughter, I just I encourage you to ask God to help you to trust him and to hear these words that he intends to be comforting and which I think, by the grace of God, can one day become comforting for you. To these who are loved by the Father, he begins here in verse 5 by asking them a question. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? See, in the midst of their afflictions, they seem to have gotten some kind of spiritual amnesia about some really important things. They're they're showing signs of forgetting an essential truth about what it means to be a child of God. 
And he reminds them here in verse 6 that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. He says God does what a loving earthly father does. He disciplines his children. The word discipline here, it's used nine times in this, this little section. It means, to, it, it means to instruct. It means to educate, to direct, to teach, to train, and to reprove. It's, it's an act of love that teaches us who God is and how we are to respond to him. The same idea shows up in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 5 of Jesus. Uh, hear this, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through what he, he suffered. So unlike us, Jesus was not disobedient and then became obedient, but rather he learned experientially what it meant to be obedient as a human as he walked by faith. He endured suffering and trusted the Father all the way to, to the end through pain, through trial, through suffering. And he, as we saw last time, Jesus is the trailblazer who blazes the way for us to walk on. And that path of pain is now the one that we are called to walk on, following him by faith, being strengthened by his his example. But we, unlike Jesus, are sinful. So God uses discipline to, to break us and to shape us, and to chisel off everything that isn't like Jesus. So, here's a, a definition of discipline. What is, what is this discipline he's, he's talking about? We're going to front load this and then walk through it. Discipline is any painful means God uses to teach, correct, strengthen, and purify his children. Discipline is any painful means God uses to teach, correct, strengthen, and purify his children. So whether it be a conviction by the Holy Spirit when you've sinned, and he he strikes you, as it were, and alerts you, no, that's not like Jesus. Or whether it be you're in a doctor's office and you get the diagnosis of cancer. Or whether you're walking through the consequences of sin. Or whether you're persecuted by enemies. Or whether you're gossiped about by coworkers, Or whatever painful thing we face, know this. God uses every ounce of your pain for your good. He is a master craftsman who takes the broken marble, as it were, of our lives and by His sovereign good grace takes off all that is not Christ through all sorts of situations and circumstances. Now, I do want to be clear that God's discipline isn't always because of our sin. But it often is. Not always, but but often it is. He's he's always testing us and, and shaping us and arranging circumstances to expose in our hearts things that are there. So for instance, Job. What did Job do to get into the mess that he got in? Nothing but obey God and worship him rightly. But when he was in the midst of the circumstances, and circumstances pressed on him, things came out of Job that showed that there was some work that needed to be done. 
there was some refining. So oftentimes God brings very difficult things in your life, not because you've sinned and this is like he's getting you back, but he's taking you through now a valley in which things are going to be exposed in you that you didn't know were there that he's now going to be purifying out of your life. He did this to Israel. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 8. He's talking to the nation of Israel who's about to go into the the promised land right after their 40 years of wandering. He said, you shall remember the whole way, meaning into uh, Jordan, uh, across the Jordan, into Canaan, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you, and he let you hunger. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you hear that? He said, I made you hungry, I withheld something from you that was a good thing so that you would know you need something more than this good thing. You need me. And then he says, verse 4, your your clothing did not wear out on you and your your, um, your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart, take this to heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. That's what God was doing with Israel. He was disciplining them. He was testing them, seeing what's in their heart. Are you going to trust me or not trust me? What's that going to show in all of these situations and circumstances? And this is what God does to his people, both individually and corporately, in order to test us and humble us and draw us into a closer relationship with himself. And this is what we should expect since he is a father and we are his his children. Now, when this happens, we are going to be tempted to have a couple sinful responses. Whenever pain and suffering and struggle come, we're going to have, there's, these, I don't think they're the only two, but you could probably put everything under these two categories. All right? Two responses we're tempted to have, and they're both here in verse 5. Look again. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The first is here, do not regard lightly. The word means to despise or to scorn or to disregard or to, to think little of. So when pain and suffering and trial comes at you, you kind of have a dismissive attitude. And you can paint it up religious-like and be like, oh, God's in control, it's all good, you know? Jesus, take the wheel and like... All things work together for the good, and like I got a verse, and like all that kind of stuff. You can like play that thing and just act like everything's fine and take it lightly. Or, yeah, or or tied to that, you can you can just not engage in what God's doing. Maybe, Maybe, for instance, you get you get convicted by the Holy Spirit on something, or you know that you're supposed to to do something. God is He's 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 prodding your heart to see, are you going to obey him? And rather than taking the hard road of obedience and humility, you just turn on the TV and just go watch some shows. It's just, it's easier to just kind of check out and we'll deal with that later. Or when these situations and circumstances come in, we we don't pray about it. 
where we hear the truth that, listen, God loves you, and deep down you say, yeah, yeah, whatever. He's just like, I'm just going to make it through this, and it's just going to be fine. And we regard it lightly. He says that's one sinful response, to not engage with what God's doing and say, okay, use this then. Do that in me, whatever it is. Take it lightly. The other is to be weary. It's the same word from up in verse 3. It means to become discouraged, to give up, to quit the race. This is, this is where we feel like we just we can't do this anymore. Now, I want you to know, I, I don't think it's sinful to get exhausted in the midst of circumstances. I think that's human. And God knows that we are but flesh. He knows that. He's patient with us. That's true. But when you start to say, I'm just not, I'm just not going to give, I'm just not going to keep doing it. I'm just not going to do this. No, I'm just, no, I'm just giving up. Forget it. No. I'm just, I'm just not going to go to a community group anymore. I'm just not going to engage in that relationship anymore. Or I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, whatever it may be. You get into a sinful despair and just kind of throw in the towel. Another way that we could grow weary, and this one might be a little sensitive, but we're going we're gonna to do it anyway. I've done this, and I suspect you have as well. Is it in the midst of, of hardship and suffering that we can begin to, to pity ourselves? And, and, and to play the woe is, is me card. Why is this so hard for me? And we, we, I think what it is, it's oftentimes an attempt to, to switch the focus from our sin that needs to be dealt with to, to our self-worth. That I'm, I'm, I don't really kind of deserve this. I've, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of stuff for Jesus. And, and I don't know why this is happening to me. Well, I want you to know that that self-pity is just another form of pride. So pride, we often think of thinking highly of ourselves. But thinking lowly of ourselves, if our focus is ourselves, it's still pride. And this is where the whole self-esteem movement has done you no good at all. Actually, Satan loves that, for you to think highly of yourselves. You see, Jesus did not die to boost your self-esteem. He died to forgive it. See, our problem is that we think too highly of ourselves. That's why we get angry at God. That's why we get mad at him. Who are you to do this to me? We might not say it like that, but those rumblings will show up from time to time. And we're just weary. Yeah, I want to I be holy, but I don't want to go down that path. Well, what this text tells us is that there's no other path to holiness. You want to be like Jesus? There is, there is a path that goes through the valley of affliction. And he will walk with you in it. But there's, there's no avoiding it. And God uses many things to shape and to mold his children. But it's never void of difficulties. This, by the way just takes the prosperity gospel and just blows it to smithereens. 
Like the prosperity gospel is like going along, that's one train, and then Hebrews 12 train comes the other way and just blows it up. Like that's just not true. That, that if you just obey God, that everything's going to be fine. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to, to Paul. It's just, not, it's just not true. So Satan wants to whisper in your ear, actually, you're just not trusting God enough. You just, you're, just not, you're just not obeying enough. If you were just doing better things, well, then your life would be better. And Hebrews 12 is here to tell you, that's not true. You see, God's not a, a butler. He's a father who loves us. And that's the assumption that he's working with here. Look at verse 7. He says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Meaning earthly fathers who are good spend time patiently training and correcting and reproving and shaping their children. How much more our heavenly father? And what that does is it gives us assurance. Look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, meaning the believers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He said, if you're not enduring suffering, it should raise other questions and other fears. You see, a loving parent doesn't just leave a child to do whatever they want. They know that's unloving. They discipline them. That's the same with God. And one of the ways that we know we are God's is through trials and difficulties and conviction with sin and persecution. Like, And all of our wrestlings with those kinds of things, the Holy Spirit cries out, you're His. And He loves you. And He is paying a lot of attention to you right now. And He loves you. And He's making you like Jesus. It's confirming. So just an aside for parents, I think we need to notice here that discipline is an expected part of what it means to be a parent. God thinks it is good for you to discipline your children. The aim must always be to show them patient, gracious, gospel love. But this, this is a, a thing I'm, I'm, I'm afraid is lacking very much in our day. We're not talking about abuse here. This church n- will not put up with any kind of abuse. But we are talking about intentional parenting. We're the first lesson a child needs to learn is that this world is not theirs. Our, our country's full of a bunch of people who haven't who never learned that. This church is full of a bunch of people. <laughs> You've got a pastor who continues to need to learn that. Because we think that this world just revolves around us and should. And lesson one in this life is that you don't run the world and you don't get everything you want because it's God's world. And God gives parents the responsibility to teach children that. So it's actually unloving of you to just let them be themselves and just figure out anything. Now, you don't need to be a helicopter parent and controlling and all that kind of stuff either. There's a balance, and we can talk about that another time. But there needs to be loving, intentional wisdom. And an address to children here. Parents do what seems best to them. I want you to get your model of what parents are supposed to be like, children, hear this, from the Bible. This is one of the reasons you learn to read and you go through all those hard things about learning how to read is so that you can read the Bible. Because your parents are really, really important, but your heavenly Father is the one who made you and gave you to those parents. So learn who he is. But also remember that as your parents imperfectly try to discipline you, 
that they are doing it for your good. Because if they don't, life is very hard. For instance, when we were on our honeymoon, we went to Alaska. On purpose, yes, we went to Alaska for our honeymoon. It was gorgeous. At the end of the trip, the trip we're going to the airport, and I'm talking to the cabbie, and we get, we're getting close to where we're, we're going to the airport, and I asked him, I said, uh, I said, so do you have anybody who just ever says, hey, I'm not going to pay, and like tries to, to get out of, of paying you? He goes, yeah, every once in a while. I said, well, what do you do? And with this, this, this look, he looks in the rearview mirror, he says, what to do? <laughs> he says, I drive about 20 miles out into the Alaskan wilderness, and I put them in their bags out there, and then I leave them. And then he said, because I figure if their mama didn't discipline them, I will. <laughs> Children, love your parents and trust them. It's going to be better than some crazy cabbie in Alaska, all right? <laughs> Promise. It just will, all right? <laughs> this is what he, he wants you to know. This is for your good. It's for your good. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be the subject to the Father of spirits and live? So hear this. This is the intent of discipline. Again, for those of you who have faced horrific things at the hand of your parents, I just want to encourage you to understand what God's intent in good, godly, gospel-centered discipline is. It's very different. It's worlds of different. It's heaven and hell different. But my father disciplined me as, when I was a child. Not perfectly, but, but intentional. Verse 10 says, as it seemed best to them. And I want you to know that I learned to trust him because of it. It's the same thing that God does with his children. God's discipline, it's so counterintuitive. It's, it's, it's magnetic, not repellent. So, so any parent who's ever disciplined their child, they know that after there's discipline, what does your child want? They want a hug. It was the strangest thing to me as a, as a parent. To see what I thought would set my child against me, actually, it, it creates a bond where the, the child looks to the parent and says, I love you, and you say, I love you. And this is why the gospel has to be all over discipline, where this is clear that you've, you've sinned, we're going to take this to God, there's going to be consequences, after the consequences we pray, and now it's over and it's done with. As far as the east is from the west, out we go to play ball. If we can trust earthly, flawed, faulty men when they do it well, how much more our Heavenly Father? Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. If you have tuned out, please tune back in now. God has purpose in our pain. God's instruction is not an end. The pain is not an end. It's a means to an end that we may share in His holiness. The holiness, verse 14 tells us, and we'll see in a few weeks, that without which no one sees the Lord. God does this so we can know Him more truly and love Him more deeply and look more like Jesus. I've used this illustration a couple years ago, but I'll use it again here. A silversmith. Silversmith takes the raw material, and the way that they get it purified is they turn on a fire underneath, this burner. 
and they bring the raw material over the fire, and what, what happens is, over time, this, this, this heat, it, it heats up the, the material, and the, the, the dross, all of the impurities, begin to raise to the top, and the pure silver remains below. And as the fire burns hot, the dross is burned off. The way a silversmith knows when the silver is pure is when he can see his own reflection in it. That is exactly what God does in trials. Where he turns up the heat of our life through situations and circumstances and pains. And what he's doing is he's burning off the dross that is in us. Our abiding sin. He's burning it off that we might look more like Jesus. That's what he's doing. It's for our good. And he acknowledges verse 11 here. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Purification is never fun. 2007 was the hardest year of my life. I was a pastor. I'd been a pastor for about three years. And um, I was dating another girl and um, had dated her for six years and really wanted to marry her. And praise God I didn't, but really wanted to marry her. And uh, that relationship broke off. And then my, then my dog died. Um, then, um, even while I was a pastor, I had, I had struggles with pornography. I'd look at it, a couple months would go by, I'd hate it, never want to do it again, but I'd, I'd struggled for a long time. And I was so proud, and I feared people's opinions so much that I, that I hid it. And I would confess, but I would confess like, hey, by the way, I'm kind of struggling, why don't you pray for me? And I would spread those out among lots of different people. I was, it was deceitful. Well, eventually, in 2007, I, um, I confessed my struggle to, to a couple of the elders that I was serving with. And um, it was a 10,000-person oil town. It's where I pastored in Texas. And word got out from that that meeting. Somebody shared with somebody, and if you've ever lived in a small town, you know what happened. And um, pretty soon, I, I became known as the, the porn pastor. And there's all kinds of questions that people had, and this and that. And during that same time, in God's mercy, um, got reconnected with Carrie, and we got engaged. So there was, it was good in the midst of this, but all of this, really hard. Our church flooded. It was a 100-year floodplain, and it flooded. Um, then 50 days before our wedding, I was burning some brush, because in Texas, you don't just throw stuff away, you burn it, and um, I was burning some brush at a widow's house, I was doing a good deed, and uh, some gasoline exploded, and a fireball consumed me, and 10% of my body was burned. My entire face was gone, my arm, um, second and third degree burns, I was care flighted to Fort Worth, and Spent three days in the ICU in the burn ward and was there for ten more days. Um, it was the hardest year of my life. I had hurt people because of my sin. I had had physical pain. I had lost everything. I mean, it was, it was really hard. I mean, 
I mean, it's 10 years removed now, but I mean, it was, it was a legit country song. I mean, I lost, I was in Texas. I lost my dog. I lost my girl. I lost my friends. I lost, I mean, my reputation. I lost my face. I lost everything. It was, it was, a, it was a legit country song. Um, but it was the best year of my life. I would never want to go through that again. But I would not trade it for the world. This verse says that all all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's a huge understatement. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when the trial is over, there is a change that happens. I think that's the only way, 2007, it was the only way that my fear of man would have died. Because when you live in a 10,000 person town and everybody talks about your sin and you confess it publicly in front of a congregation three different times and you don't have membership, so it turns into like everybody's at the meeting who just wants to come and see, it's, it's hard to be proud. my pride, lust. But you know what? In the midst of that, God, God gave me a wife, a good wife, a godly wife who walked through all of that with me. God healed our church. Self-righteousness died there. There was just no place for it anymore. And God did a lot of healing in there. For six months, I went to a, past, uh, to a, to a counselor named John Henderson. And God used him to make me understand how the gospel is not just for non-Christians, but it's, it's for Christians. He's our associate pastor today. It's how I ended up meeting Mark Dever. I went to a conference with a friend who I'd walked through this stuff with just to kind of get away, and I met Dever, and that's how I got to CHBC, and that's how I got here. But most of all, I think God made me a little bit more like Jesus. Like he made me love him in a way that I, I, don't, I didn't love him before. He's made me trust him in a way that I didn't trust him before. And I'm still growing. But this is what God does in our lives through pain and through suffering. You've got to know that God is not angry with you. He's not enjoy your misery He's not like the far side comic who's got his finger on the smite button just ready to to smash you at your every turn. You see, 2007, God wasn't pouring out wrath on me. He was pouring out mercy through discipline, even though I lost everything in one sense. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came and he suffered for our sin on the cross and he took wrath and then he rose from the dead and he glory so that now we who are sinners in our suffering we we suffer not to pay for our sin because it's already paid for but to purge us from sin so that we might go with him to glory this is how he works in our lives charles spurgeon said i have looked back looked back upon the dark hours in my own life and say that I bear willing witness that I owe more to the fire and the hammer and the file than to anything else in my Lord's workshop. 
I sometimes questioned whether I would have learned anything except through the rod of discipline. When my schoolroom is darkened, I see most. Brothers and sisters, do not resist his hand in the trials and the tribulations that he brings. But know, as he says here, it is for discipline that you have to endure. We endure so that we may receive discipline so that we may be more like him. May we be a church that trusts him together and know that the highway of affliction does not end in our destruction, but it ends in glory with Christ, looking more like him. Lord, give us mercy. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask that you would indeed use discipline in our lives in whatever way is going to most glorify you and most transform us to look like Jesus. Lord, that is a weighty prayer, and we do not pray it lightly, but we pray that you would, in your mercy, shape us and mold us. Would you increase our faith that we might trust you? Would you help us to to know that you are a good God who works in the midst of all of the things that we face? that you know what we don't know and see what we don't see. And that we would believe not just that you're strong and powerful, but that you are good and you're loving. We would believe it because you gave your son Jesus in our place. We pray it in his name. Amen.